Welcome back to the Sports Dorks Podcast here with the Daily Emerald Sports Desk. Um, coming to you with our second episode of the year. This year we're going to have Krasnowski and we got Joe Moore and Owen Murray and Jack Lazlos will be joining us in a bit. But for now, I'm sitting down with my brilliant co-editor, Nina Grace Montez, and we're going to talk a little bit of volleyball. Nina's done a great job covering volleyball this year and it's been an impressive season so far, but there's still some left to be desired. So Nina, just real quick, catch us up with what's happening with Oregon Volleyball. So Oregon is still currently ranked in the top 25, which is exciting, especially as the season is winding down and we're getting ready for the NCAA tournament in December. From covering the team last year to this year, it's definitely a different mindset with the team, which has been really fun covering because they're not really focused on games they're more or winning. They're more just focused on the big picture. So it's really been interesting covering that because that's not really a mindset we see with a lot of coaches. Yeah, and it's a mindset that apparently seems to be working. I mean, Oregon Volleyball, 17-4, and 7-3 and three in the Pac-12. Um, but one of the goals that Coach Ulmer has talked about a lot in his press conferences are hosting a regional. With those four losses, is that still something that's potentially in play? It definitely is, but it is like time is running out. With a game against Washington State, with who they lost to and is currently ranked number nine in the nation, and Washington, who is unranked at the moment, it'll definitely be an interesting weekend to see how that plays out. And after a big loss against Stanford last week, it's going to be really important that they come out with at least one win this weekend. So what, what's been like the main strength of this team? And on the other side, what's been the main struggle of head coach Matt Ulmer's squad? I definitely think it's a mix of both for them. So since Marquette back in September, they've kind of played very timid and very shy. Their attacks and their serves, it's definitely been very vanilla. In their big losses this year, they've definitely come out more aggressive. But what happens when you come out aggressive is sometimes the ball will go flying 30 feet past the out-of-bounds line, which is a great thing to see that they're taking more aggressive swings, they're trying new serves and everything, but you just have to get used to that adjustment, especially when you've been playing safe for so long. So it's like a strength and a weakness at the same time, but I think that's the kind of my Mindset that takes you into December. We're just like in an adjustment period right now. So you mentioned that part of the schedule that they're in right now, but they're also in part of a schedule that they're entering the second half of conference play, kind of getting a second shot at a lot of these Pac-12 teams. There's going to be some teams that Oregon beat that want revenge against the Ducks, but also a chance for the Ducks to beat these three teams they've already lost to in conference play. I mean, Arizona State, Washington State, Stanford, all of those home losses, the Ducks have a chance to redeem themselves with these rematches, but all three of them are going to come on the road. Would you say that any of these losses are redeemable in Oregon's second time through conference play? 100%. And it's especially important to note that they were undefeated last year at home. So losing at home is definitely a big factor for them, and it's definitely something they carry to heart. So it's going to be something that they're thinking about coming in on the road. Um, Wazoo, I think, is going to be the best game just because of they're at the same level. Mentally, they were just not there. They definitely were struggling. They were tired. Their hits weren't landing. Arizona State was definitely a shock loss too, especially in a sweep. But Stanford, that is definitely a playoff team. Last year, they were with Oregon and advanced just as far. So it'll, it'll definitely be an interesting season, but Wazoo and ASU for sure, those are redeemable. Well, walk us through a little bit. What has covering this team as a student journalist been like for you? It's been really fun. Um, there's a lot to observe. Volleyball is one of those sports where nothing is ever the same. 
Um, at any moment, momentum can change, the direction of the game can change. So you have to pay attention to every little thing that's going on, whether it's a ref call, a ball that touched the line and they called it out. Like little things like that will change the entire outcome of a game. So it's been really interesting. It's also definitely pushed myself as like a sports fan of like learning all these little tricks and things like that to be able to give like really good in-depth coverage. Yeah, you mentioned growth as a sports fan. How have you been able to grow as a student journalist during this season? I mean, obviously, you did great coverage last year with the volleyball team, too. But is there anything specific from this season that's helped you grow as a student journalist? I think just more familiarity with the sport. I played it in high school, but outside of that, like I think I stopped playing my junior year. And it was just for fun and just to stay active. So it wasn't anything I took too seriously. But now that I'm covering the team and I get to see the ins and outs of what it's like to run a, t- a nationally ranked volleyball program, that's that's definitely what's pushed me to be a better journalist. That's awesome. And then last thing on volleyball, you mentioned Oregon's home losses kind of being a weird theme this year and something that wasn't present last season. Matthew Knight Arena can be a really, really cool atmosphere for these volleyball games, especially when the team's doing well. And I mean, the Pac-12 is such a strong volleyball conference, a lot of really exciting teams coming to Matthew Knight Arena. Um, in those high action environments, when there's so much energy and passion, How are you able to separate being a fan and getting caught up in those moments while still being a student journalist? I kind of found success with it naturally, which is kind of funny because I think it's my personality. I'm not really a big outgoing person. I like to stay to myself. So even whether I'm sitting at a media table or I'm sitting in the stands, I'm still naturally pretty quiet. But it's definitely hard to like not clap in front of um, people at the media or like just to like it's definitely like there's nail biter times and things like that and to make sure that I'm still riding and things making sure I'm still doing my job um, it's definitely hard especially with this team because of the long rallies they play very scrappy but I think my personality kind of is helping me be successful which is really nice a couple of big matches this weekend with a chance for Oregon to potentially redeem some previous losses um, on a team that still has a lot of excitement and a lot of room to grow and some pretty awesome things down the road. Thanks, Nina. Yep, thank you. All right, we're going to transition from a team that's having success with Oregon Volleyball to a team that's actually still looking for its first win. Oregon Women's Soccer this year, 0-15-12-0-9 in conference play. This team's been shut out 12 times and has only scored 7 goals this season. That's right, this team's been shut out more than it's scored. The team was 4-8-7 and seven last year, so it wasn't good last year. Somehow got worse this year. And we've talked on this podcast about the Ducks having such a young group, a young core, but it's not going well. Nothing about this is going well. And with Oregon being kind of the sports powerhouse that it is, I mean, football historically has been a good program. Women's basketball historically has been very good. Volleyball is usually pretty good. Men's basketball historically has had some pretty good teams. With that brand of Oregon, is a team being this bad kind of okay? Like, okay, you have all these other really good programs. You can afford to have one that's not so good. Or does this team stick out like a sore thumb in what's otherwise a really, really solid Oregon athletic program? I mean, I think the flip side of what you're talking about is that, you know, in Oregon, teams are expected to be successful immediately. They don't think a lot about, you know, hey, let's give this team time to grow. It's something you see, obviously, a lot in pros. But, you know, in smaller programs, they'll be like, we're willing to take a group and give them, you know, two years to become a team that we believe will be really successful rather than let's build like an okay program that will be okay for four years. There's potential for this women's soccer team, right? We've talked about it to become one of the better programs in the Pac-12. They've got a really young group, and they can 
you know, take these time not only to grow together as athletes, but as a team, and that's a huge advantage. But they won't be successful immediately. It's just weird for an Oregon team to just be not dominant at all. And like you said, like it's weird for them to have to rebuild and go through a different te- uh, different kind of process and not be like with Dan Lanning's team. You didn't really see much of a drop off, but you pivot to women's soccer and they haven't won yet and it's just a complete different vibe around the team having to focus on rebuilding a bunch of young players just an interesting dynamic for Oregon sports and and Lily's not here to talk about the team today but Lily's done some some great coverage I mean she's really studied this team inside and out she's she's examined all all angles of it but from a lot of the pieces that she's written you read a lot of these quotes that the players, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but a lot of the times are saying, hey, you know what, I feel like we did this really well today, or this was something I'm feeling really optimistic about. And it almost sounds like, hey, we're finding some good moral wins, which I'm all for moral wins, but at what point do moral wins need to start coming wins? I mean, if they're they're taking real moral wins from shutout losses, I think that everyone on the team right now has bought into, let's give this some time, like... Let's give it a couple more years. And I think at the same time, everyone they recruit will buy in really easily. And I think in the future, this could only mean a good thing because this is Oregon. They're going to have every team be be good. It's, it's okay if one team is bad. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that just the soccer program in general would go through this season if they knew their jobs were on the line. I find it difficult for them to believe that they wouldn't dip into the transfer portal, that they wouldn't go through all this turmoil, that the Ducks wouldn't go through all this if they knew that their jobs were in jeopardy. And it just kind of seems like a weird dynamic that, man, an Oregon team is really, really struggling right now in, in the Pac-12, and it's only going to get tougher in the Big Ten. I mean, do you think it's okay for a D1 school who's expected to compete to have a season like this where they're like, we're going we're gonna to take it, we're not going to do great, but we're going to build a team that we believe is going to be good next year? Yeah, I, th- I think so. But that's a weird thing to ask someone to buy into. And and I think going back to Jack's point about recruiting, I think it affects that a lot. I mean, Oregon entered the season ranked 11 out of 12 in the Pac-12. The preseason women's soccer polls, Oregon was supposed to be 11. It's currently sitting comfortably at 12. So it's not like the team's underperforming that much. This wasn't like men's basketball last year where it started the season ranked in the top 25 and missed March Madness completely. This team wasn't supposed to be there, and it's not there. But going to your point about recruiting, how does a team like this that's struggling like this recruit moving forward? What is the appeal to, hey, come play soccer in the rain, in the cold rain at, for a team that hasn't won a game yet this year? I think Oregon pours so much money into the sports that – I think there's a way for them to wow over soccer recruits. And at the same time, like I mentioned earlier, they're going to want to buy in. I think they just need the right group of people to sell, and then I think it'll start growing. And then obviously now with all the transfer portal stuff, it'll be pretty easy to get more experienced players from better schools. Like, for example, our goalie last year, Leah Freeman, she transferred to one of the best programs in the country, and she's currently starring for them. She's at Duke, and she was really the bright spot of the Ducks last year, and I think that was hard to replace. That emotional support and energy was hard to replace, and I think, again, their jobs are not on the line, so they really are just taking what they can get this year. It just feels like an uninspiring brand of soccer. You want to go and have fun. Like I wonder what the coaches' pitch to their players are. Like 
come join this team that has gotten shut out more than they've won or than they've scored. It just seems it's tough to sell to recruits. I think that with recruiting, I mean, the brand that Oregon has is an advantage. And I think that um, the buy-in from the players can almost be seen as an advantage with this recruiting. I'm not going to say that they're going to be good next year, but it's a it's not as difficult a pitch to pitch to a high-level recruit to say, you can come in, you can start immediately, you can be a focal point of this team, you just have to buy into waiting a year or two to really compete. And that turnaround is going to be really tough to do. They're going to have to bring in more than just one or two recruits. But the sports brand that Oregon is, it it's possible moving forward. Yeah, I think it's going to it's going to have to be convincing these recruits that, hey, this is something that we're trying to build and we want you to be a part of it. And you're going to have to buy into this process that we know what we're doing. and We're taking steps in the right direction. Um, obviously, we'd love to get Lily on here again to, to talk to us about this team that she's done a great job covering. But we have someone here that's also been doing a great job covering a fall sport. Um, Mr. Krasnowski, was that every fall softball Everyone. scrimmage or scrimmage game? Um, it was a bit of a chaotic fall softball season, but um, walk us through it. How, how'd the Ducks look? Oregon looked incredible so far. I mean, they went undefeated, and Oregon just was able to dominate every game. Uh, I'd say the biggest strength of the Ducks going forward would be they're unbelievably fast. They flew all over the bases, even against not the teams that they're playing aren't Pac-12 quality. But the speed that they have was really evident, beating out easy infield base hits, using their speed all over the diamonds. Kyler Shaw, especially going coming back as a veteran, was incredible for the Ducks, and it was just a really positive fall for them going forward. Obviously, we talked about two wins away from making the college softball World Series, and they seem like they really want that, and it's it was honestly really promising for the Ducks. So why why does Oregon being such an aggressor on the base paths matter come Pac-12 play in what's looking to be like a really talented conference? When you're playing teams that are this talented, it's really the small things that matter. And I'd say Oregon being significantly faster and having a lot of freshmen that are really, really fast. Reagan Leg, Ayanna Shaw, both fly. And you could see that throughout the fall. And it's really important when, these, when they're playing high-quality teams, when they're playing the UCLA's and Stanford's, you need fast players, and that was really evident throughout the fall. I'm glad you touched on some of the freshmen because that's one of these things that the fall season is so great for is Oregon does schedule significantly inferior opponents that it that it's supposed to go out and kind of beat down a little bit. But in that, it gives teams a chance to play freshmen, play young players, play people that don't always get to start all the time. Um, and so I'm sure you got to see quite a f- quite a few of these young ducks Talk to me a little bit about the youth of this team. Is it a strength? Is it a weakness? I think it's absolutely a strength. Melissa Lombardi talked a lot about this, and she was saying that the freshmen don't look like freshmen. They really don't. They look experienced. They came in, with, and they all played well, and they really had no small issues. I'd say the biggest issues for them going forward would just be getting more and more experience, but for the games they played over the fall, they really came in and dominated, and these freshmen really don't look like freshmen. They really stepped in and were able to dominate for the Ducks going forward. Going forward, looking like a fun team. Did great coverage for the fall. Looking forward to it in the spring. Speaking of going forward, we're almost at basketball season. We've got tip-off coming out soon. Women's basketball starts this weekend. Um, going to be a fun season, but the AP polls came out. Student media polls came out. Coaches' polls came out. Are there any surprises that neither the men's nor women's teams are ranked to start the season? No surprises. 
I mean, what have they done to prove in the last couple of years that they deserve to be ranked here? I'm, they started the last two seasons ranked. Last year, they missed a tournament entirely. The year before that, they ended the season outside the top 25. They don't have the benefit of the doubt coming into this season like they have in the past. No surprises to me seeing them miss the poll. So why is that different this year? Because I'm glad that you mentioned the benefit of the doubt. I, I wrote a piece on this last year tr- tr- talking about trying to make sense of these teams being ranked because two years ago, the women's team makes the tournament, gets upset in the first round, and is done. The men's team starts season ranked, doesn't even make the tournament. Going back to last year, both teams started the season ranked. Both teams missed the tournament there, too. Why last year, after a disappointing season the year before, were both basketball teams still ranked, whereas this year, they're not? Why, why, why are they not getting the benefit of the doubt or being able to lean on this Oregon brand? Because we see it in football sometimes. Like It always feels like in the AP polls at the beginning of the year, like, Notre Dame is always ranked based on its brand. It felt that way with basketball last year, that maybe Oregon was only ranked because it had this national brand. Why is this year different? Oregon underwhelmed two years ago, but the advantage that they had coming into last year was that they were expected to be good, and they underwhelmed, but they brought back a lot of the key players. This year, for both men's and women's, they've lost a couple of those key players that gave them the benefit of the doubt, that like you could look at the season before and just be like, they underwhelmed, they're bringing back the same guys, it should be better. But this year, both men's and women's have lost some of those really good players that have caused them to see that they could improve a lot just by nature of having another year. And this year, there's a lot of new faces, a lot of the familiar faces are gone. They just don't have that benefit of the doubt anymore. They're unproven now. Both teams taking some major hits, I mean, for the men, well, Richardson's gone. For the women, Tahina Pow transferred out. India Rogers transferred out. Taya Hansen graduated. You're right. They, these are going to be two very different-looking teams. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, they look very different, but at the same time, the benefit of the doubt last year, I thought a lot of it came from being a bit older. And Will Richardson and Dante, I mean, Dante's back, but uh, Gary A, he transferred away. I mean, he's, you know, 25 now at this point. Um <laughs> It's just I think they get less of the benefit of the doubt now because I think when it's a lot of recruits like Shellstad, Cook, Evans, who are all now going to try and be the guys now, they're going to be a good core group. I think it's hard to give those guys the benefit of the doubt when I don't think any of them were McDonald's All-Americans. Um, and I think, the, I think the national media, they they get behind a lot of that. And I think... I think it's it's not surprising that they're um, not in the top 25 right now, the men. But I think come season, I think it won't take them that long if they kind of put it all together within the time frame that we need them to. I mean, because they still have that name brand deal, right? They're still the Oregon Ducks. And, you know, if they're playing well, they're going to be, hey, it's the Ducks. Let's get them in the top 25. Yeah, and, and I think it's going to come down to what kind of support are these are the teams getting, too. We've talked about fan turnout at Matthew Knight Arena. Oregon men's basketball head coach Dana Altman said after the after its loss to Wisconsin in the NIT last year that there just weren't enough fans at Matthew Knight. Now, the argument can be made that it was the NIT. Oregon really wasn't playing for much. So it is... Oregon going to be exciting enough to get fans back in the seats at MKA? I mean, we, we mentioned Dante's back, and he's on the—today he was announced that he's on the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar watch list this season. Like, that's exciting, but what can we expect from fan turnout at Matthew Knight Arena? Is there enough excitement around these teams 
to get people to come to these games. I think the excitement, especially with a team like this, gets created. Because I think there will definitely be more people excited for a guy like Shellstad, who's from Oregon, and you know a lot of people see him in high school and went to high school with him. I think that's going to be important for a lot of fan turnout. And I think that once the team, once the Ducks kind of get going a little bit, like last year, I think the the real issue was that they never got going. The Ducks never got going. They never strung a couple wins together and then created a big win streak. It was just a kind of mess season for them. So I think that even in a game where they were playing a top-ranked Arizona team, it was still kind of dead. I, I think they need to create their own excitement this year. So with that, with that being said, coming into this year with some of those younger players and a couple returners, both on men's and the women's team, who are the key players going to be? Do you guys think it's going to be more these veterans that are returning, stepping up as leaders? Or is the season going to be made or broken off of these new faces trying to prove themselves in duck uniforms? I mean, I think that it's going to come down to the new guys. For both men's and women's, I mean, we talked about the key losses, but it's just the big names that you have on these teams they were here the last two years, and the Ducks underperformed. So if you're looking for improvement, it's going to have to come from the new players unless you're really banking on just internal improvement. Um, but after two straight down seasons for the Ducks, you have to look at the recruits, you have to look at the transfers, and you just have to hope that they are able to breathe some life back into this team. I think... It all comes with just star power, and I think college basketball now is a very star power-oriented game, but I think the main difference between now and a couple years before is that the transfer portal and NIL has made it more of a fair game for everyone. You're not seeing you know, R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson, and Cam Reddish all at one school. I think every school has their kind of identity right now, and a lot of their identity can be strung up with one or two recruits that they've had over the past couple years that are really stars and I think the new guys at Oregon need to need to create that buzz and that star power in order to for this team to really get people behind them and I think that'll create success for them as well yeah I like that word you used identity Uh, both teams are gonna have to find their identities but Oregon football on the other hand looks like it's found its identity it and part of its identity is risky play calling Um, since the last episode um, Oregon went to number seven Washington lost in heartbreaking fashion, and there were some questionable fourth down decisions. Um, head coach Dan Landing decided to go for it on fourth and short deep in Washington territory, or maybe you kick some field goals, maybe Oregon wins that game. There's been some scrutiny there. I mean, Oregon bounced back last week with a uh, 38-24 win over Washington State, has a huge game against Utah tomorrow, but part of that identity, like you're talking about, is risky play calling. We're now a year and a half into Dan Lanning's run as Oregon head coach, and this is a style that we've seen from him pretty consistently now over this last year and a half. It hurt Oregon against Washington. Last year, it hurt the Ducks against Washington and Oregon State, but there's been other parts of the season when it's been really beneficial. I mean, the fake punt against Colorado, there was an onside kick last year against uh, UCLA. Some weird stuff happening. Do we like it? Let's talk Lanning. This risky play calling, is it good for the team is it good for the identity or is it doing the ducks more damage than it can sustain i think lanning's play style is good for the ducks identity overall 
I think that a game like Washington needed to happen because I think if if Lanning's looking at all this analytically, he made two wrong decisions to start that. Should have taken the field goal, should have taken the points. The analytics always say that points are better than no points. And then also I think that uh, the last one was barely on the cusp of um, – the analytics saying go for it, and I, and at that point, I don't know if the analytics account for it being a one-possession game with two minutes left, and all Oregon needs to really do is hold the ball. I, I just think that the risky play calling, I think the analytics of it need to take more precedent for the Ducks because they're, they're kind of taking a little bit of uh, risks without a lot of... It didn't seem like there was a, bit, a lot of foresight behind that last one especially, and I think something like Washington, the game, I think they were kind of just doing it for, for like, the riskiness sake. I don't know if it was really going to be benefit that beneficial to the Ducks. So I think that landing needs to start separating what's, like, the right call and, like, good for the Ducks what rather than, like, just kind of doing it. I mean, from, like, a media standpoint, from the fans, it, you're always going to remember the ones that hurt more than the ones that are good, right? It's... It's going to be tough. You're going to remember the three missed fourth downs more than you're going to remember the fake punt. But, I mean, it, it's his identity, right? Yeah, it's the identity, and I think it's something they should definitely stick with, especially Dan Lanning's play calling, both on special teams and on offense. I really just feel like they they need to take a step back and really just think about the riskiness as a whole. Because while the fake field goal against Portland State, that worked— it really didn't have any place there. I think, especially with the fourth down play calls um, at the end of the first half and then at the end of the third quarter against Washington, they really needed to take a step back and just play it safe there. I think there's places for it and there's not places for it. And analytics and, you know, common sense and hindsight and all that, I think just say that in that game, they needed to take a step back. And I think. Again, a game like that had to happen for Lanning to really just start doing that. Yeah, the the, got, the football's a game of risks, right? It's a time of when to take him, when to not take him, when to get caught doing two risky things. Let's talk the Michigan scandal. Uh, this is something that broke this week. If you're not familiar with it, frankly, I'm not sure you've been paying that close attention. The Michigan Wolverines are in trouble again, sign stealing. They had some personnel go to several opponents games with cameras and record the signs that were happening down on the field and using it to their own advantage how bad is this scandal or is this something that a lot of teams are doing and michigan's just kind of the one that got caught what do you think jack i think i think michigan kind of just got caught and i think the ncaa is kind of is going to try and drag this out just to create an example because this is something especially in the way that they did it it's so easy to do um, it's so easy to just to get tickets to another game and bring a camera. It's pretty inconspicuous, and at the same time, it's very easy to get caught. So I don't think—I wouldn't be very surprised if a lot of other schools start getting caught up in this. And I don't know if the NCAA is going to really do anything major, especially with regards to a top-two program right now, um, because I just think they, this is more about— creating the example, getting everyone else scared because this is more of a, this is a very like kind of hush-hush, like everyone kind of does this thing. And Michigan's a good team to choose because they're in a big conference and 
you know, with all the conference realignment stuff, it's a lot of teams are going to start trying to get away with a lot more stuff. I think the NCAA is just kind of barking up a tree just to do it. Yeah, the thing that stands out to me is just the public Ven- Venmo transactions. Like if you're going to cheat, cheat smart. I mean, you can't have public Venmo transactions getting out there. But kind of circling back to the Pac-12 now, we're about halfway through Pac-12 play for the football season, and the Pac-12 is already kind of doing Pac-12 things where it's eating it itself. Um, but it's a little bit of a jumble. I mean, USC's had a couple disappointing games in a row now. Oregon's now with a loss. I mean, Utah's looked good enough in a lot of its games. So uh, to finish us off here, we're going to go around the table. Give me your top four teams in the Pac-12 right now, I mean, in order, and predict a conference champion. Uh, we'll start with you, Joe. So I have Washington, Utah, Oregon, and then USC. I think Oregon versus Utah, this is being recorded before that game, but we'll break it down after. I think that'll be a big key to see if Oregon will have its first really quality win. They lost that game over Washington close, but I feel like Utah has been able to consist. They've been good enough, and that's been good enough for me to put them over Oregon so far. And then for USC over Oregon State, I know USC has had a couple of tough losses, but I think if those teams played each other next week, USC would win. So who's your conference champion then? I would have to go Washington. No surprises there. I think they've been the best team so far. Um, I'm going to have to slightly disagree. I think Washington's the best team, and then Oregon— Utah, and then SE. And I just think that Oregon, I'm just going to be pretty simple here. Oregon's looked better than Utah a little bit. Like, I think Oregon's looked a lot more comfortable. Um, and then the conference champion, I think there's just no stopping the Huskies. Michael Penix looks like, I mean, he looks like he's throwing that ball better than I've, I've, I've seen anyone else throw that. All right, I mean, I'm happy to have Washington at number one. They looked really impressive. I watched them in person. Some of those drives, the speed that they can go at is what really impressed me the most. I'm happy to put Oregon right beneath them, get Utah under them. That's a huge game, like Kraz said. Uh, be interested to see what happens there tomorrow, right? And then I want to slide Oregon State in at number four. I've been really impressed with them. I, I picked up that game against UCLA. I was watching it in Seattle after the Huskies-Ducks game, right? I was really, really impressed with what Oregon did. And I'm happy to slide them at number four, Oregon State. Man. Yeah, I think Washington and Oregon are pretty clear. Um, One, two. I think it's got to be Utah number three. They've looked really impressive. Their defense is incredible. I think the Utah-Oregon game tomorrow is going to be uh, just an instant classic. Um, And then I think at number four... It's tough to not put USC in there, but after two tough losses, the defense looks really suspect. I think it's got to be Oregon State. Um, Oregon State has looked really, really good. Uh, Their one loss only by three points against Washington State, which is looking worse by the week, but I still think Oregon State has been really impressive. So who would your conference champion be? I think it's going to be really tough for anyone to beat the Huskies this year. They look incredible. Owen, what do you think for a conference champion? I want to be different. I'm going to say I think Oregon pull it out. I backed the Ducks to go undefeated over the rest of the season. And I watched that Huskies game against Arizona State. And, oh, my gosh, it was so close. I, I They easily could have lost that one if not for a missed pass interference call and some Michael Penix in the fourth quarter magic. 
Yeah, I yeah I I, I agree. I, I and Joe, I liked what you said about Oregon State. I mean, it it's been an an interesting team to follow, and it's had some games where it's looked pretty good. I think it is a huge test this weekend for Oregon State against Arizona, who quite frankly was a team I considered putting in my top four. Right now, the Wildcats are playing good ball. They uh, their two losses to USC and Washington came by a combined nine points. This is a good football team, and not one that I think Oregon is bummed that isn't on the schedule this year. Arizona's a quality school, but I'm gonna agree. I'm I'm gonna put I'm gonna put Oregon State in that four spot. I think I think Oregon State is a very good football team. One loss earlier in the year, but it's had some pretty dominating wins too. In the three spot, it's Utah until it's not. I I truly think that this team is overperform that Utah's overperforming this year, but the Utes for years have just found a way to win big games. Two, I'm going to put Oregon. I agree that I like their chances, that I like Oregon's chances to win out. I mean, according to ESPN's FBI, 68% chance to beat Utah, 91% chance to beat Cal, 73% chance to beat USC, uh, 95% chance to beat Arizona State, and then 74% chance to beat Oregon State. The odds of of Oregon winning out are likely, but right now, the number one team has to be Washington, and it's Washington until it's not. That being said, my conference champion, I still think is Oregon. I think if Oregon and Washington play again in a neutral setting Pac-12 championship game, maybe with some of learning from some of the mistakes that were made by coaching by players in that Pac-12, in the game up in Seattle, I think Oregon can sneak that one out. Um, I frankly, there are parts of that game that I thought Oregon outplayed Washington, and I think in a neutral setting with that loss and kind of that fuel already lit. I think the Ducks could bowl that one out. I think the Ducks are still very much in play for a Pac-12 championship. But Ducks got to get through Utah first. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break it down and see where Dan Lanning's squad is at from then. Um, For now, this is the Sports Dork Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.